so I really much believe in the nonlinear path, putting yourself in the ring and um, finding ways to look at high equity spots, which really are just some form of luck, right? Like they, they may pan out, they may not pan out. This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. I'm interested to, to get into the real estate aspect, but mm-hmm. uh, just personally, before we get into that side, um, mm-hmm. were, you, were you in the camp of like seeing this happen, but not taking it seriously? Or were you one of the ones who took it seriously day one? What was your... So that's a great question. Um, honestly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I wasn't taking it seriously. Like I wasn't like disrespectful of what was going on. Mm-hmm. But I certainly did feel that people, you know, like maybe some of, I won't name any names, but some of the older people in my life that were really kind of worried about it and perhaps from a different generation that followed the news quite freely. Um, I was just sort of thinking like, okay, are we overreacting? That's, that's right. how it felt at first. And, I, and admittedly, my wife and I, um, we had a trip planned with our daughter and my dad and his girlfriend. We were going to Costa Rica. And when you have a young child and you, you know, you're kind of working hard all the time to take care of a kid, you know, that break that you're looking forward to is pretty meaningful. It was amazing. So yeah. we, I think it also allowed that to cloud our judgment of what was going on because we were so very much wanting that break. Right. Um, so that was kind of like, and, and then as I peeled back the onion, um, I, I definitely realized the severity of the situation more and more. And then, you know, pe- what I found interesting too, those people like Dr. Is it Dr. Drew? He was, you know, like there was, uh, there was some so. smart people out there that were like, like a celebrity were talking doctor? about yeah. this. Yeah, celebrity, you know, there's some sort of quote unquote <laughs> smart or, or in the public eye people yeah. that were talking about this in, in a way where they were saying like, it's just like the common cold, like get your flu shot, wash your hands, don't worry, right? right? And really, I think the severity of the illness is probably for the vast majority of people, not that much more significant than the common cold or flu, but the rate of spread is just unprecedented. And there are some material impacts that are different, right? Like the, the effect on the respiratory system is different than a common flu. And, you know, like when you, when you combine those added effects with the strain on the healthcare system, like it's a real thing, like despite it being like a, a, a virus that won't necessarily affect that, you know, the vast majority of people, it is affecting some people significantly and, and, and some in the context of the global planet is a shitload of people. <laughs> yeah dude I, I remember being so I, I was flying to pittsburgh i think it was first or second week of march which is like it was right at the start of this the peak of this whole thing and i remember being uh i was sitting next to my gate and i, I looked at the, at the tv at the monitor and, and it was some you know, harvard grad from a, from the med- uh, medical division who was talking about how the use of masks actually is, is more of a, a damaging thing versus something that it will help you and and i'm just sitting there i'm like you know is this really as serious as people make it out to be like i'm just going to get on a plane now and it's it was second week of march and this whole frenzy was starting to happen so it, it's tough like looking back see, seeing you know whether you, you'd be too serious or just kind of winging it i guess it's, mm. it's kind of difficult when you look back but the ripple effect that this is going to have on the on the planet and on enterprise and on commercial real estate it's going mm. to be significant like and it's going to last a lot longer than I would have anticipated. <laughs> so it's real and it's here and we have to learn to, to, to live in a new world order. Yeah. And, and, and it brings up a really good point. When you and I first, well, we, we met, been friends ever since and kind of just catch up uh, a few times during the year. Hopefully we'll get to do that soon. Mm-hmm. But you have a very interesting vantage point. So uh, for people who don't know, you're a senior vice president for CBRE, which is obviously a leading real estate company. I think a lot of people would know CBRE just coming from, uh, kinda coming from a brand name. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is also you've been really on this kind of surge of, of the shift in office space, whether that's co-working. And I know you've been working with a lot of startups. Before this mm-hmm. whole thing happened, what were those shifts that you were starting to see in terms of trends? Yeah. Um, so I think that there was a real disconnect um, that was starting to take shape between what customers wanted to buy in terms of the real estate solution mm-hmm. and what landlords or operators were able to provide to them. So as time has gone on, um, the ability for companies to forecast what their business is going to look like over a medium or a long-term period of time has increasingly just diminished and become harder to, to rationalize or figure out, right? Um, you know, even if you look at a company like Microsoft, the business that they were operating five years ago is completely different than what has propelled them to the place that they're at today, right? Like they're in the right. cloud business now, and they weren't necessarily to the same extent five years ago. So even large enterprises... Are, are completely shifting the way in which they do business. And it's really just connected to how fast technology is changing the planet, right? Um, so that's started to have a really material effect on the way that companies look at real estate and it, they weren't able to buy it in the way they wanted. So a longer way of saying there was a move towards a more flexible and a more agile and a more nimble way of buying real estate. And WeWork certainly is the brand name that everybody knows that kind of championed that change. Right. Um, I, I would think that most landlords out there years ago, like, um, you know, let's say five years ago, would have probably started to have been following these trends because they're in direct contact with these tenants on a regular basis. But they weren't really wanting to make the bets on making these changes. Right. Because in most big cities around the world, whether it's Toronto, New York, Berlin, uh, London, England, vacancy rates have been low. Demand has been high. And rents have been high, right, over, you know, since sort of the 08, 09 crisis. So when you're in a great position, it's challenging to kind of like think more so into the future in terms of how people might want to buy, right? So that's really been the paradigm shift, but it's definitely quite bifurcated. And when I say that, what I mean is, you know, companies like Google or Microsoft or Salesforce, like they create campuses, right? And they want to either own a stake in those assets or they lease them in a lot of cases long, at least for those anchor uh, components of their commercial tenancies, right? And and in turn, they really want to create their own environment, right? So they're still in a lot of respects, not all respects, like they they definitely are pushing towards more agile strategies the way they lease space, but for at least for those key locations, they're, they're leasing them long and they're building them to suit. So that's kind of like the quote unquote, older way of doing it but and so those tenants like and then you know like let's take canada as an example um you combine those tenants with the banks financial services firms and um consulting firms they occupy like something like 50 percent of the real estate right mm. so but so there's not you know it's 50 it's percent of the real estate in the hands of a small number of companies relatively speaking and then right. the rest of the market has an average size of, you know in terms of square footage of like 10,000 square feet and those companies want to buy real estate completely differently they want to buy it shorter they want it to be um, fully built out for them. They're willing to take something that's more vanilla or cookie cutter in an effort to get that flexibility because their business needs are so dynamic and change so so constantly that mm-hmm. a lease that's five or 10 years long just doesn't make sense for them. So I think that it's that 50% of the market that's really driving a complete way of buying real estate or leasing real estate. And you know the market had started to respond to that through the rise of WeWork and it's, mm-hmm. it's since, you know, really spread in so many different ways and landlords are starting to do it as well and start to recognize that they need to either 
partner up with the right operators and great operators or they need to do it themselves. So that was already happening. And I think this COVID-19 crisis is just going to turbocharge that completely. Yeah, it, it's very interesting. You know, from, I guess, where, where I was sitting, you know, some of the trends that I saw too, just to add to that, um, the, the first thing that I actually realized, which was weird, was and it, it's something that I saw within our company with TMX, is is kind of this this removal of offices. That was the first thing, you know, before like you'd have, apart from, you know, maybe HR or legal where there are a lot, you know, confidential conversations. But for the most part, even I think our CEO at the time just had a cubicle, just like the rest of us, you know, and it was kind of like a, like a apartmentalization. So that was an interesting shift that that you, that you started seeing. It was kind of more of a democratic landscape from a, from an office environment. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then the other one was what you were saying in terms of um, like the WeWorks or the co-working spaces. Like I was in a Regis first and then moved to spaces uh, in Yorkville and Toronto. Uh, and that was another interesting one. And you're starting to see what, even if companies have a HQ, you know, parts of their offices are spread out in, in these co-working spots as well. So it, it's, it's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. And I, I love the point where, where you mentioned that it's also like, if you're a startup dude and you raise like a, a series B, you go from being, let's say, I don't know, 50 employees to 150 in maybe a month or two. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh shit, like this, this space doesn't fit us anymore. Yeah, we have a four-year contract. Like that doesn't work for a lot of tech startups, and you work with a lot of them as well. Yeah, for sure. And they don't, you know, it, like being in the real estate business is not a choice. It's a, it's an unfortunate necessity for them, right? Mm. So, um, you know, when you look to every other industry out there, um, you're you're able to buy in a way that you kind of want to, more so than a way that you're forced to. So, I, I really do think that that's going to change. But one of the underlying problems that slowed this process down is it's, it's more challenging for lenders to value a shorter duration lease contract. Um, so landlords have had a harder time figuring out how to underwrite, how to, how to borrow money against it. You know, how, how, how essentially do they borrow money and how do they value their assets with shorter contracts in place? Because what's historically driven value in commercial buildings has been high credit worthy tenants that lease space for long periods of time, right? But uh, there's a guy named Dror Pollock. He's a very um, forward-thinking commercial real estate consultant. He's, he's got a very global lens. He makes a really great point. I was, I was listening to something that he was saying recently. And, you know, he talks about how lenders are very happy to um, lend money to a hotel um, who has the right sort of things in place, right, which is a, is a really high-quality location, a really high-quality asset, and an operator that is known – and also of high quality, right? If mm. those three things are in place, a lender is willing to provide capital against the shortest duration rental contract you could find, a nightly rental, right? So it's really it's really more about location, asset, and operator that drive you know the value. And I think that commercial real estate and office leasing just need to kind of pick up and recognize that they need to look at this paradigm in the same way. That, that, that they are in, in the hotel sort of sphere. And that, that comes on both sides, right? It's the lenders and it's the operators and it's the landlords. And they're, mm-hmm. they're all connected. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, man, it, it's a crazy shift. And, and as we talk, I mean, we're kind of talking pre-corona. When this whole thing happened, as you started progressing throughout it as well and thinking of how to pivot and maybe even just seeing what the, how the market re- would react, one of the things that's often being talked about now is are people going to go back physically to, to office uh, buildings, mm-hmm. right? At mm-hmm. least if, if they have the option. For me, mm-hmm. for example, I live in Chicago. I work remotely. So for me, it's quite of an easy answer. But mm-hmm. for some, some roles, maybe you have to be, I don't know, depending on, on, on certain reasons. Mm-hmm. How, how much of that do you think is going to happen in terms of a percentage? Like how much 
of the uh, let's say employee base is fully going to go back to mm-hmm. to their to their buildings or how many of them do you think are going to remain uh, remote or working from yeah home? so it's a, it's certainly a tough question to answer and one that i'm definitely i just want to provide the precursor that I'm not the authority in, in this area, but I can certainly sure. provide your some, personal some opinion. context. Um, so actually um, I'll give my, I'll give something uh, that I'm doing a little bit of a plug while I mention it. Um, I'm doing a new podcast or sort of uh, interview series myself. It's called moving forward. And one of the aspects of this conversation is talking to entrepreneurs and senior executives about how they view the future of work for their own organization. So I recently caught up with Mike Servinus from League, and mm-hmm. that conversation is going to go live next week. And I did ask him uh, a question as it relates to, to what you're asking me. I kind of said to him, you know, I, I think on some level we're, we're all going to go back to work, quote, quote unquote, go back to work because it's going to look very different. Um, my question to him is, what are you going to look for from your operator or landlord partners to keep your employees safe and productive, Right. And so he answered in a lot of different ways, but uh, in a roundabout way, what the, the, to go back to what you're specifically asking, mm-hmm. uh, he said that, you know, he's, he's um, been able to determine that most of his teams have been able to effectively work remotely and that, you know, his employees' safety are, you know, of utmost importance, right? And so he doesn't necessarily see his company rushing back to work, even if the government opens the doors and says, you know, you can go back. Um, and, and if yeah. and when they start to bring people back into the office, it's probably going to look like a rotating staff, probably not much more than 25% of the staff will actually be on site at any one given time. Uh, they will definitely take into consideration uh, members of their staff that might be more prone to sickness and, and you know provide those people with a more safe haven, which is not going to be coming into the office. And then the, you know, they are going to be practicing social distancing measures um, for the foreseeable future, really, until there's a little bit more clarity on herd immunity or some form of vaccine, right? Or, or something that I'm, is below, you know, is above our pay grade that I don't even know about, right? So it's definitely not going to look anywhere close to the type what of used normal to be. that yeah. we had just a few short weeks ago. And, you know, I think there will be shifts that will, will um, permeate forever uh, mm-hmm. from this, just like what happened uh, after 9-11, you know, with travel. I think that there are going to be elements of this this crisis that are going to remain with us forever. Um, but I think it's safe to say that things will look different for potentially years. Yeah. And I think, you know, one thing to preface too, for a lot of people, because I think there are some people I know who this is their first experience working from home, you know, and unfortunately it's not the best first impression, you know, and, and although, there are different circumstances, right? Like I know you have a two-year-old at home. I know a lot of my colleagues do as well. And, and that can be even more challenging, but that's also not the norm. Like normally if you pull out COVID entirely and you're just working from home, even if you're working with your partner or spouse, mm-hmm. um, your kids typically would be in school. Mm-hmm. You're, you're typically able to move around. So let's say, you know, if, if both of you have important calls, you can just, you know, take a hot desk at WeWork. You can go to a community area. You can go to a coffee shop and work out of there if the weather is nice. You have some mobility options. But yeah. if you live in a condo, you know, with two kids, both of you are working, let's say in a similar role where you have a lot of conference calls, Zoom calls, that makes it, you know, extra pressuring, right? And well, you're, you have kind of, dog. you're making a good point, man, because like, you know, my daughter <laughs> just woke up from her nap, like literally 25 minutes ago. And yeah. I, you know, I reminded my wife, hey, I'm going on a podcast, you know, let's just make sure that there isn't too much noise coming from the main floor. So that's definitely not... <laughs> a normal remote working situation, right? Um, yeah. It's yeah, different. no, I think that you'll find that, that people are, if, um, 
if we get to a stage where we find a way to open up a little bit of the economy, and to me, some of the more important elements of opening the economy are some form of retail opening. Mm. Um, I think people need that in some capacity. But I know, I mean, again, kind of above my pay grade, how to do that in an effective way. But I think that that's important. And then those essential services, right? Like daycares or schools. Like we have to find a way to get back to that. Otherwise, like this is not really very sustainable. I think like the effects on mental health will be uh, pretty significant if we have to persist this way for years. (laughs) I certainly hope it doesn't, it doesn't look that way. Well, I recently saw the updated numbers of, of un- the, the U.S. unemployment uh, filings. So people filing for unemployment. It's yeah. about 24, 26 million. The yeah. last time I saw that. Yeah. Uh, and also the note on the suicide. I, I've, I don't know if I've come across a report yet, but I've heard it on podcasts and stuff. Excuse me. On the amount of uh, suicide cases that are rising now, um, you know, just kind of regionally or even like state by state. Uh, I'm not sure in different parts of the world, but I'm just talking about U.S., which is where I live now. Yeah. Uh, it's it's yeah i don't know how sustainable this is going to be man how have you dealt with your mental health dude especially being as someone on on more so the sales bd side where i can resonate with this your energy has to be you know typically more positive right mm-hmm. we're not necessarily in different domains so mm-hmm. just curious to see what 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 have you been doing to deal with this especially as a father and as yeah. a partner as well well so yeah and i'm all, so i'm a father i'm a partner i'm a salesperson and i also lead a team of people right so all of those there and then you know i can't forget myself i have to think about myself too so everybody need all those areas need um something from me um and i think that first and foremost the way i view it you mentioned you were you're an optimist and i know you personally so i know you are an optimist um i think it's important to recognize that optimism is not the denial of challenges right it's yes. in fact the acceptance that challenges exist and that the future is bright, right? Mm -hmm. So I very much try to remind myself of that. It doesn't mean that I have perfect days. You're tone deaf. Yeah. What's that? Like, it doesn't mean you're tone deaf, essentially, is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't mean I follow my own advice. But um, really, I think it's it's that underlying um, understanding that I try to remind myself of on a daily basis. And then the other is having the willingness to be vulnerable um, with all of those people in my life, right? Mm. People I work with, my wife, even being vulnerable around my two-year-old daughter. Like if I'm having an emotional moment, you know, it's okay to show that. But there's a really big difference between being vulnerable and what I might call like oversharing or, um, you know, not putting uh, putting your emotions ahead of somebody else, right? So like, let's just say um, I'm having a bad day right now. My daughter's just been driving me up the wall. And my wife is the one that actually has an important call um, down here. You know, if my daughter wasn't sleeping and I'm just wanting a break and I kind of put all of that, you know, sort of stressed out energy onto her, that's not really being fair or vulnerable or, or you know, empathetic. Like right. there are times when you got to like check your own feelings and just prioritize someone else or some other situation that matters more than, than what you're doing. Um, so that's, yeah. that's really important to me. And then just being open and honest, um, you know, yesterday I got on a call with my team and I told them that over the weekend I was having a pretty rough time and I was getting frustrated by the fact that we're isolated. And, you know, I, I admittedly had some moments where I'm like, man, screw this. Like, I just want to like get back out there. And like, if, if I get it, I get it. You know, like it was just a thought that I kind of like externalized, right. It's not actually how I feel like I'm a, I'm a reasonable you, human you. being and I, and I respect what everybody's going, what, what everyone's doing. And, 
and I respect all the frontline workers that are that are really putting themselves out there. And I'm not one of those people, so I, I definitely don't take it lightly. But it doesn't mean that you don't sometimes have frustrated moments and moments where you want to like, you know, scream or something. So yeah, I, I I definitely have all those moments and all those 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 times, and I acknowledge them and I try to like I try to move through them. And then beyond that, um, I've tried to introduce things into my life as it relates to work mm. that are charging me up, right? So like this conversation we're having right now, it's charging me up. Am I you pumping know? you up, David? Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, buddy. That's good. Creating, That's uh, creating a new initiative, like moving forward, right? And finding an interesting way to be able to connect with my prospects or clients and talk about something that's timely, you know, when, when my revenues are down and I don't have as many deals to work on. Like, these are the ways that I try to find good in my day right yeah no i, I think that's spot on dude and a couple of things I, I would highlight too just to compliment is uh, on the vulnerability thing so I've, I've been this is something i've i've really had to work on dude if i have to be vulnerable right now that, that has been some something i i think that i wasn't aware was maybe a, a challenge or a weakness let's say um and, and recently like i've I've looked into brene brown her tedx talks mm-hmm. and reading her books as well yeah. for a lot of especially men listening specifically i would highly encourage you if your personality is somewhat similar you know you're sort of this uh rah rah like you know very aggressive kind of sales mentality optimist self-improvement every day daily like this is the perfect category for you to learn on um just because not everybody thinks this way too so when you were saying like you should be sometimes the balancing act or when you can be vulnerable with your team that's important without having to always say like you know it's you know despite what's going on we can still hit quotas and go above and beyond our metrics because that 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 becomes a bit toxic and kind of like exhausting you know you kind of you can burn out really easily whether it's yourself or your team no you're bang Um, on and like so you're you're bringing up something that i'm just being reminded of which is um i've found that i need to to prompt my team the people that are working alongside me um to to basically be a bit more gentle with themselves right especially Mm -hmm. the younger salespeople that literally just start i have two guys on my team that just started seven months ago in a business, like we're in a, we're in a business where the sales cycle is incredibly long, right? Because, you know, if someone is addressing their real estate needs, they're addressing them usually like at least six months, you know, before they actually have a lease expiry or a decision to make. So when you start out in this business, it's not like selling a software service, you know, platform where you can just like maybe close a deal like it's transactional. Like it takes you months and years. Like the longest sales cycle I've had in my job has been probably four and a half years from initial conversation to deal closing. Right. That's crazy, so dude. They haven't had much momentum, these these young guys, right? But they're super hardworking, they're mm-hmm. super competitive, and they have this like burning desire to be productive, right? And I'm having to remind them, like, guys, like I know who you are as people, and I know what your skill sets are, and I know what your motivations are. But you gotta like be with the fact that and there's a new normal here, right? Like, you know, you might be having a mental health day. And you, you know, you, where you may be productive four out of the five days or five out of the five days that we were working prior to this crisis. If you have a week where there's only two days where you feel good enough to really get something done, like know that that's okay, man. Like I'm, I don't have a shock lock on you. I'm not expecting you to like, you know, make miracles happen. Like I'm, Mm. we're here and we're with each other for the long term. Right. So that's the view that I take with my people and I'm probably don't take it enough with myself, but, Mm. uh, you know, I, I think that it's really important to just try and try and be that way. It's interesting too when you say like you have this burning desire to be productive. I find myself doing that as well. You know what I mean? Like, and and I get kind of scared. I'm not scared, but I mean, I get I, I get worried, 
especially being in a new market myself. And when you say, you know, your, your, your sales, um, like the, the life cycle is very long. It's the same for us too, right? With companies looking to go public, it's never day one. It always mm-hmm. is going to take some time and, and kind of uh, fostering that relationship. Curious to know from a sales perspective, bec- like in the example of, of the prospect you had that was, that took four years to close, what did you do in those four years to just nurture and, and prosper that prospect? Yeah. Um, so I think that you, you have to balance, um, reaching out for reaching out sake, right? Because when you're, when you're reaching out and not really providing too much value, you know, what's the point in reaching out? Right. So it, it's like you're a mole. Have you ever played that game where like you have to hit yeah. the mole? Just got, yeah. Hey, just checking in, just checking in, just checking yeah, in, just checking in, just checking in. Exactly. <laughs> so I try to avoid that. Um, so I would say that if I'm cold emailing somebody or, or maybe warm emailing after I've you know gotten in contact with them, I, I obviously try to find a way to frame my email in such a way that there's value to add, whether it's the market or whether it's um, you know maybe an introduction I can make on their behalf, try to help them open a door. I, I always try to think very multifaceted in the ways in which I can help the company. Um, I also believe in the power of social media. Um, you don't, you know, like instead of your 12th email, you know, make a post about something that's relevant to, you know, your market and, or what you do and tag that person in it or share it with them in a private message with a thoughtful note. Um, you know, those are ways in which I try to add value. Um, mm-hmm. I also created a platform, right? Like I, I created forward. cbreforward.com, which is, um, you know, which is a platform that showcases the success stories behind a lot of my prospects, right? So I've, basically turned my practice into some form of a media company right mm. and that in and of Which itself is great. like it, it's amazing to see that dude i want to pause right here just because i don't want to lose my train of, of thought yeah. but w- when we first when we first connected on linkedin that was the first thing i saw actually of you it was i think you were posting like either daily or weekly videos and i saw you know co-founder of or, or founder of uh, cbre forward i'm like damn i didn't know that you know cbre had like a startup and i'm like i, I wanted to know you know more of what you were doing and i didn't know really they had a digital approach for people mm-hmm. listening, especially in a core plans, you basically took entrepreneurship under your wing and you just kind of promoted it within within your core. Yeah. And I feel like people listening don't don't always expect that that's possible. They think yeah. that you just ha- you, you you have to leave corp to to do something to be an entrepreneur. How was that mm-hmm. process for you? Like, how was CBRE like? And yeah, so it's like a really interesting um, story, actually. I, I I'm really actually quite proud of it I'm and, and and interested in in it, even though it involves me. Um, so um, I guess what I would say is that um, like life is just such a nonlinear path, right? And um, I'm sure you're going to ask me about yes, poker sir. at some point. Um, <laughs> but what I learned through poker is how nonlinear things are. And really what you need to do is put yourself in positions to win or get lucky, right? And, mm-hmm. and you know, the, the people that are able to identify when there's a high equity proposition in front of them through putting themselves in the game enough, like, you know, people that are willing to take imperfect action and put themselves in, in the ring. It's kind of like the Brene Brown thing, right? Like if you're not in the ring, like don't throw stones at me. Right. Um, but by, so I really much believe in the nonlinear path, putting yourself in the ring and um, finding ways to look at high equity spots, which really are just some form of luck, right? Like they, they may pan out, they may not pan out. So that's kind of the underlying principles that I believe in. Um, and how it started for me is really multifaceted. I first got involved with 111, which uh, unfortunately, oh, yeah. since I suppose recently though. Yeah. Um, anyway, I got involved with them as a sponsor. Um, Seabury decided uh, to sponsor them. I kind of championed the idea, the, the thought behind it being, 
um, you know, it would be it would be smart for us to connect ourselves to really high growth companies that are, um, you know, very likely to need more space, right? So we built that relationship there. And um, while I was at 111, um, you know, for a, like a demo day one day, everyone's wearing sweatshirts, t-shirts, and it's the typical kind of like tech startup vibe. And there's this one other guy there um, who's wearing a suit, and I'm, I'm the only guy wearing a suit. I don't wear a suit anymore because I work with a lot of tech companies, but um, <laughs> at the time yeah, I was change. wearing a suit. And uh, <laughs> I kind of thought to myself, okay, I could try to like connect the dots with all of these people that are here some of which who are actually influencers or buyers of what I sell or are not. And I'm going to have to try and find a way to discern all of that. Right. Or I could just talk to this guy in the suit who seems to know a lot more people than me. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of introduced myself to him, pastored him a bunch of times over the course of a few months. He ended up working at Deloitte and he then suggested to me, well, why don't you sponsor Deloitte for our technology fast 50 awards program? And I, I was like, he told me what it was all yeah. about. He's like, you know, you can, you can basically be a gold sponsoring. You can interview every one of these founders and CEOs across Canada. And every year they tell us where their businesses are headed. And like, in my mind, I'm like, holy shit, ding, ding, ding. Like getting in front program. of the people that are the hardest to email or get, you know, call like that never take our inbounds. I can get in front of them and they're going to tell me where their business is going. Like what a, what an amazing way to sell back into them, you know, at a later date. Right. Mm -hmm. So I went back to my company and asked them for the second sponsorship and luckily they supported me again. And like, it was kind of a running joke at that point because I was basically asking for money. Right. Um, so that became a really amazing business development platform for us. And as I got through the first season of those interviews, I realized how like connected this ecosystem was like, it wasn't just like the companies were all connected to like the Deloitte's of the world, the 111s and the DMZs and like, I kind of felt like an outsider, but like I had these light bulbs going off, like, oh my God, this is this ecosystem. It, it, it's like not just the company, it's, it's this thing, right? So I kind of thought to myself, like, what can CBRE do to connect into that more deeply and to further and showcase and, and promote all of these organizations? Because the biggest problem that we face in commercial real estate is that we are very much selling a time-based service, right? So the company is either growing, shrinking, as a natural lease expiry or needs some sort of supplemental location, either in the market that they're in or in a different city altogether. If one of those things right. isn't happening, you can be the best salesperson in the world. You can be the best real estate broker in the world and they don't want to talk to you. Right? So what do you do in these long tailwind sales cycles to stay connected? Right. right? So I kind of just started to noodle on that as a, as a premise. And I thought to myself, like, I need help here. So I went to my business partner and I kind of told him, look, I think we've got to do something, something to promote at least the company's stories. Like, I think it's got to be different than Deloitte. We can't do a sponsorship. We can't do an awards program, but we can maybe do something to promote the company, right? So I said, like, can you commit to like partnering up with me on this and let's go spend some of our own money. We'll hire an agency and we'll try to come up with some, some concepts, right? And so uh, he and another one of my team members who was very helpful in, in this project as well, her name's Amy Calcutt, the three of us kind of found the right partner to discuss these, these things with. And we came up with the initial concepts of Seabury Forward with their help. So we built a magazine, a website, and we shot three videos with companies. And I was very strategic about which companies I picked to shoot videos with. I picked the ones that were not Seabury customers and that I knew had a high probability of growing in the next sort of six to 18 months based on the interviews that had been conducted through Deloitte's Fast 50 Awards program. Mm. So through doing that and spending our own money to do it, 
I then converted one of those customers uh, into probably about $150,000 worth of revenues. And I then went to the CEO of CBRE and I said, hey, look what I have. Like, I didn't just give him an, an idea on the back of a napkin. I spent my own money, invested my own time and created revenue, right? It's the same thing as going and getting outside capital somewhere else. And I just think that a lot of the time, people that work inside of a company don't recognize, like they, they go and tell an idea to their manager or their, or their CEO and they like want them to go and like facilitate it for them. It's like, man, you might have to put some of your own skin in the game, right? And so through doing that, they, they bought in and we created forward and they gave me a budget for it and we went and just like let it run. And now today, that, forward is much bigger than that, right? Like it, it does a couple different things. It showcases the stories of successful, innovative companies it tailors real estate strategies for high growth companies. So it's not just generic, um, you know, like sort of um, research facing, um, you know, uh, brokerage advice. It's very, very tailored to the needs of high growth companies. That is called Grow Smart. So it's like a sub brand within CBRE for Grow Smart. And then now we've come up with another initiative, which is timely and related to the crisis, right? Which is called Moving Forward. So there's so many different like ways that I'm now leveraging this platform for the benefit of my own personal brand, my team's brand and my company's brand and, and ultimately revenue also. Yeah. Well, I love that, man. And I think what you touched on at the end where it's like, you know, you came to your managers or the senior management team and you, you had a very well thought out plan. It wasn't something crazy. You, you, you had a very specific value attached to that, you know, strategy that related to the company, but also for you as well. You showed why you'd be the right person to tackle that. You went and did it in kind of like a, a beta stage. You didn't, mm-hmm. It's not like you asked for like $2 million up front for this grand scheme, right? For people mm-hmm. listening, like you went, you kind of chipped at it very, very slowly. You're like, listen, give me a bit of rope here. I'll put in my sweat, my equity, my, my time. If I do show you results, then we'll come back and we'll talk about a, 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 maybe a larger plan mm-hmm. that we can move forward with. Yeah, And I think doing it that systematic way led to that success, which is awesome, dude. And it puts you apart too. Like imagine how many employees are at CBRE? Oh, we have like something like 80,000 employees globally. 80,000. Dude, how do you fucking stand out among 80,000 employees? That's cool. Yeah. You know, well, this is in one way. In context, we maybe have 1,500, but even, even 1,500, it's hard to stand out. Yeah. It's still a lot, man. It's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not a 20 person company, you know, yeah. where you're like the only head of BD or sales or marketing. That, yeah. That's easy to stand out, right? Yeah, Good or bad. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that, that's, that's really interesting. I love that entrepreneurial angle. And also, you know, the last thing on is, is when you, when you said you leverage social, I think you did that very well, especially when I remember that period where LinkedIn was like high on, on video, right. And all their algorithms were kind of tending. You just pivoted very quickly and you were doing a lot of these, I, I would say very helpful uh, videos. And it kind of touched on different topics, right. For different purposes. Sometimes it was just about the real estate market. Sometimes it was about commercial, sometimes about, you know, residential, whatever the case was. Um, so, so I love that kind of pivoting because sometimes in your space too, and that's one question I wanted to ask leading to this, I was just kind of setting the context is a lot of people in the real estate game, regardless of, of which division it's in, use social, right? And sometimes there's this like negative connotation when it comes to real estate, much like insurance or sales for that matter, yeah. right? So how do you, and I've, I've, I've gotten this question before is like, how do you maintain your professionalism in sales, right? Especially putting yourself out there. I don't know mm-hmm. if you've gone that question before, but what, what, what's your sort of take? Uh, yeah. So to me, it sounds like you're asking like a two part question. It's like, what do you, what do I think about the strategy that, that commercial real estate people use when it comes to social? 
Yeah. And then the other is like, how do I, how do I manage making sure that I uphold my own personal values and brands while also upholding the values and brands of, a, of an organization that I work for? Does that sound right? Exactly. Okay. So I'll answer the first part. I think the, the issue that I take with what most commercial real estate people do on social is they, it, it comes across as braggy or self-serving. Like they'll post, uh, they'll post about a deal that they just completed, right? Or they'll post a listing that is available for sale or for lease. And it's just too overtly about them. And what's the value really on the other side, right? Like there's no insights, there's no nuggets. It's, it's really like the equivalent of a, of an email marketing campaign through a newsfeed is, is the way that I look at it. Um, and, and I started to see that and it really didn't resonate with me. Like this is pre me doing anything on social media. I was watching what some other people in my industry were doing and I was just observing. Like, oh. I was just observing and I'm like, this doesn't work for me. But then I was turning elsewhere and I was looking to, you know, big people like let's say Gary Vee and I was seeing what he was doing or um, Shay Robottom, all these, these sort of LinkedIn, either like big or micro influencers. And really what they were doing is they were giving away information for free. Right. Like they were giving away high value information to their prospects and their communities and their ecosystems for nothing. Like they were just, you know, it was like it's the and I know there's a strategy behind it. Right. It's like, again, that Gary Vee thing of like jab, 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 right hook. It's like give, 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 and then eventually find a creative way to ask for something. Right. Mm -hmm. So I kind of thought that that was the approach that I wanted to take. And what I actually did is I had the humility to just recognize that I didn't know what was going on there. Like I recognized that while it seemed sort of simple on the surface, I didn't understand really what was going on behind the scenes. And um, I actually happened to get prospected by this guy. His name's Fabio Marama. Oh, and uh, he's an awesome guy. Um, and he, he actually sent me a message today. So I got to get back in touch with him. But he reached out to me kind of cold in the beginning of January of 2018, asking me if I wanted to take part in like the beta testing of a LinkedIn training program that he was putting on. And it, it just talking about how long sales cycles can be, even for something that's quote unquote transactional, like buying, um, you know, a, sale, a, a LinkedIn training course. He stayed in touch with me in a couple meaningful ways from January of that year until July. Wow. And I eventually elected to buy his training and I took it and it gave me so much information that I'm so grateful for. And that started me down the path of, um, doing content in a way that's more sort of conducive to adding value as opposed to bragging. And like, I'm not saying that the people that are doing this are actually trying to, to be braggy. Some are, some are not, but they don't understand like what people want. And Maybe that, I, I, that's how it's perceived at least. Yeah. That's how yeah. it's perceived. Right. Um, so that's sort of my answer to the first question. And then the second one is, is interesting. Like how do I uphold my own brand and the company's brand? Um, you know, I, every time I have a conversation I definitely try to think like, okay, well, what would my CEO think if he was watching this? Um, but I'm really lucky to work for a company that is willing to allow its staff or employees to take imperfect actions. You know, I've been on podcasts where I've actually sent them to my CEO and he's come back and said, hey, I really liked it, but I did notice this or this. And, you know, the next time you go out there, you might want to think about that, right? Mm. So I've got an organization that's it's yeah, constructive and, I, like, and it just makes you better. Yeah. And it, but, it, but it's nice to know that like they're willing to allow me to go out there and represent the brand and theoretically make some mistakes or blunders. Right. Mm -hmm. Not that that's my objective, but it could happen. And they're essentially 
investing in the fact that they think I'm a good ambassador for the brand. Right. 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 So I'm just very fortunate to work in a place that's like that because if someone wanted to try to squash me, it would suck because, you know, I do have my own personal views and I do want to share them. And um, I am a future and forward thinking person. Um, so yeah, I'm just, I'm just lucky that that's a place that I work. And, and I, and I, I, I take that with the fact that I always want to make sure that even if I make a mistake, it's, it's not um, intentional. And it's not to disparage any one person or, or my company, right? I always have the best of intentions. And if I just always act in accordance with that, you know, then, then I don't think anyone's really going to fault me if I make a mistake. Yeah. Uh, no, I love that last part, dude, especially being with a company that obviously respects what you're looking to do and, and realizes that there is a lot of value and they support you. Right. I think that's, I think that's honestly very, very comforting uh, to know. Like I'm in the same situation too with, you know, given my podcast and stuff and and just a company that kind of gives you rope and says, do it, dude. I mean, go for it, make it happen. And we support you obviously given that you don't step out, you know, step out of line in any way. Um, I I did want to touch on the fact that speaking about the the whole entrepreneurship thing, it probably stemmed from, you know, you being a professional poker player, which people by now, I wanted to leave it to the end because it was kind of like a surprise, but you you kind of hinted at it at one point, um, yeah. and and I know it's on your profile, but you basically generated a shit ton of money. By that I mean like two point five mil. I think it says thirty percent mm-hmm. ROI over three three year period. Um, people would think it's it's inter- I mean, the the whole notion of being a professional poker player. I'm, I'm curious to see how for you, how you transitioned for one, and how you stayed being a player for about four years. Like that that's mm-hmm. quite some time doing that professionally. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a, well, you make a good point. It's tough to actually um, stay alive in the game for that long, <laughs> and get um, out of it, right? Yeah, I mean, and, well, yeah, and get out of it too. So um, I'm happy yeah. to tell you the whole sort of story there in, in as concise a way as I possibly can. Um, so I think first of all, it's important to just mention that I never really liked conventional jobs. I resisted Makes them sense. from the time I was a teenager. <laughs> Um, and my dad, if he's listening, would laugh at that because um, he was always trying to encourage me to go and work. And I was, you know, either telling him to F off or like, you know, just sort of making a, like a, making blunders or, or quitting or whatever. So I definitely never really liked that. Um, and one of the things that I was really captivated by was individual competition. Mm. So I was a, a competitive ski racer when I was um, a teenager. Interesting. And there was something about um, the purity of that individual sports pursuit, like whether you're a sprinter or whether you're a ski racer, like something that's timed where like, you know, if you're the fastest, you're the fastest, right? There's no, there's no um, referee that's determining whether you, you know, whether you should like win or lose. It's just like time-based and, and it's black and white. Mm-hmm. So there was something about that that I really liked. And um, I was never good enough to pursue skiing at a high level. Um, and so that was kind of a void for me when I stopped and around the sort of earlier 2000s, like 2003 to 2005, poker really just took off. It took off as a result of this guy named Chris Moneymaker, crazy that his name was Moneymaker. Um, he won the world series of poker in 2003, but what was really interesting about him winning it is he was the first person to, to qualify through an online satellite into a live poker tournament for $10,000. That was the entry fee. He put up $30 and he won a $10,000 entry. And then he then parlayed wow. that into two and a half million. And he was an amateur player and accountant from like somewhere in the United States. So mm-hmm. that just created this boom. 
and I got really hooked on the game. And, you know, at first I was just playing with friends in, in basements for five bucks and stuff like that. And, and just given my, my, um, my love for individual competition, I was really one of the only ones who wanted to keep pursuing the game. Everybody else kind of got bored of it. And I kept calling people up for like Friday night games. And eventually they just were like, Dave, we don't want to play anymore. Right. So <laughs> you're crushing us, dude. Yeah. But whether I was winning or losing, I think they just were like, they just got bored. They were like, I don't really want to do this anymore. And so it was kind of around story. that time that I went to university. Yeah. Um, and in university, I had the free reign to start playing online. Right. So I wasn't really a very methodical player. Um, most of the people that experience success in poker, they make a deposit of like a hundred dollars and they play micro stakes. In other words, they make sure that they have a low likelihood of going broke because the amount that they invest in any one game is very small, disproportionately small in relation to what their bankroll is. Right. Mm. But I just, I don't know. I was always really captivated. I was going into lobbies of these online poker um, sites and I was seeing and watching the big games that were going on. And I just like wanted to be in those games as quickly as I possibly could. What so, was it about that? Like, was it kind of the adrenaline? What was it? So what was so uh, enticing basically when you watched that? I just had this like, like this burning desire to compete with really smart people. Mm. That's what it was. And um, it was definitely misplaced. And now that I'm 33 and, you know, I have a much more mature perspective, I definitely would not have approached the game in the same way that I did, but it's just part of my life's journey, the way that I did it. Um, so in, in a roundabout way for the first couple years of my life in university i was basically running up a bankroll losing it running a bankroll losing it losing it running a bankroll losing it. finally in my third year i made enough money that it was going to be hard for me to go broke um i ended up winning a tournament a 75 dollars buy-in tournament for like 12 grand us and then a day later i won a 320 dollars buy-in tournament for 25 grand us so all of a sudden i had like sixty thousand dollars canadian in in my third year of university um, and then, you know, I, so, and I remember I called my dad and I told him I won these two tournaments, but I didn't want him to know that I had $60,000 in my bank account. So I told him I won 20,000 because I just, I didn't want him like on my back about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, I kind of finished out my third year of school. And then in my fourth year of school, a friend of mine and I agreed that we would basically chop action. Um, I'd play on my account. He'd play on his account for a big series of tournaments that was happening on Full Tilt Poker, which is a site that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but we just agreed we'd split action. So there was an event that um, the first place prize was 216,000 US. Uh, it had about 8,000 players in it. Uh, we won that tournament uh, for 216K. So yeah, that's that nice. was crazy. That was that changed my life um, because so we we split that money fifty fifty. So I walked out of university with like roughly two hundred grand at twenty one, not even twenty one twenty, turning twenty one. Um, well, most people walk out with student debt. David Cannon yeah. walks out with two hundred ten k. Yeah. So that was um, this calls out for like a thug life video. <laughs> yeah. Well, I definitely had a lot of bumps in the road after that, but. Um, it just sent me down a very different path. And yeah. what's, what was interesting for me at the time, and I, I now see this as I kind of coach young people in my industry, is I had this incredible amount of certainty um, at that time because all I wanted to do was play poker. I didn't really care about the money. I just loved the game and I loved the pursuit and I wanted to win tournaments. And I just, it was like the ski racing, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I just had this incredible amount of certainty that I was just going to do this. Um, but anyway, I, I ended up going down to Vegas that summer. I played in some World Series of Poker events, which were much higher buy-ins than I'd ever played before. Like the buy-ins down there were anywhere between $1,000 and $10,000 that I was buying in. And online, I was buying in for anywhere between $20 to $200, right? So it was a significant like increase in buy-ins. And and a significant decrease in the amount of volume that I could play. So essentially what that equates to is a hell of a lot more risk, right? Less volume, higher buy-ins equals much higher chance. Much more risk. So I lost something like 20 or 25 grand uh, that summer. And it was just very eye-opening to me. I was like, holy shit, like I could very easily lose this $200,000. Like I have expenses to live. And then on top of that, I'm playing poker. Like I could fuck this whole thing up, <laughs> right? Yeah. So um, I had the foresight, even as a young person, to just step away from the game for a bit. I traveled for like five months with a friend of mine. And I kind of told myself, if I'm going to do this sustainably... I'll find a way to to make it that. I'll find a way to make it sustainable. So I, I took a bit of a break. And then I leveraged the very few relationships that I had to the game of poker because I was very much still an outsider of the game. I didn't, you know, I wasn't in the game, so to speak. And I had a couple of people, though, that I knew. And I ended up um, finding a way to get a backing deal. And, in, you know, essentially an investor, like yeah. a VC investment. I yeah, definitely yeah. like it's even more risky than VC investing. Um, and, um, I happened to be getting it at the right time because, um, this, what we ended up calling the moneymaker effect, Chris moneymaker won the world series of poker and it started this influx of players just flooding into the game, many of which who were really bad. So think of it like a capitalist economy, like, you know, the, the, the cream of the crop, the best players were just like taking all the money from the bottom and it was rising to the top. Um, so I kind of caught the tailwinds of a guy that had made a lot lot of money from this money maker effect and he was a multimillionaire. and you know investing in in backing someone like me didn't stand to materially affect his bankroll even if i wasn't successful right but he ended up backing me and you asked me like how did i stay in the game for so long that's really the way that that's i was able it. to do it right um mm. so um yeah i had a lot of bumps in the road along the way it's probably you might want to have another podcast with me like just about that um and then i'd have to check with my ceo to make sure that he'd be okay (laughs) with me talking about all of it um but yeah that's just kind of the story of how i did it and then how did i get out of it you asked me how did i get out of it it was probably the biggest self-identity crisis that i've ever had um i i ended up getting out as a result of um a very cataclysmic event that happened in poker it was it's now been referred to as black friday where the U.S. government indicted the largest poker sites, poker stars and full tilt for a wide variety of charges, tax evasion, money laundering, wire fraud. And so as a result of that, they ended up shutting out the U.S. economy from being able to play poker altogether. And that I'm really lucky that happened because I didn't I was miserable, like poker had taken its toll on me emotionally, mentally, physically. Like it wasn't just money. It was a lot of other things. Um, so the fact that, that happened just, you know, it, it changed the game completely overnight. A lot of the bad players weren't unable to play anymore. The prize pools diminished by as much as like 75% in some cases. And it just started this progression of me getting out of the game. So I'm very fortunate that that happened, actually, because I don't know whether I would have floundered around for another three or four or five years if that had not happened. Um, but really, I ended up having to take a bit of a leap of faith. I had to just decide, okay, I'm going to decide to identify myself as someone else now. Mm-hmm. And that was really hard, but... Um, Luckily, I met my wife at the at that time, and we kind of helped each other through a couple different transitions together, and, and 
that's how I sort of started down a different path. I love that, man. No, that's a, that's a really good story. I mean, it takes a lot of self-awareness, but also a lot of humility to, to know when to step away, especially with a game that, that, that could be very addicting, right? If you don't have boundaries, but uh, what, a, what a cool ride, what a cool story. Um, and, and just to, uh, to, to sort of wind this down, I'm interested to know what, from whether it's poker or the transition to the CBRE and, and kind of rising through the ranks. I think you started as an associate vice president. You've been there now for, it says, almost eight years. I actually started lower than that. I, didn't, I haven't accurate, accurately updated my LinkedIn profile. I started as a, as a research assistant. Damn, making, okay, well, making, there you go. Making 35 grand a year, supporting the salespeople <laughs> that do what I do now. So I actually started right at the bottom. Wow. Well, maybe that's the question that we can wrap this up with is how do you, or what were the lessons basically through, through rising through the ranks with CBRE uh, with the past eight years from being a research assistant to becoming an SVP? What, what would you say some of those were? Um, I guess I'd start by actually giving my company a compliment, which is that they have a structure in place that really allows you to incrementally learn the job, the market. Because, you know, we, we don't sell a product, we sell a service. So it's, it's what we have inside of our heads that people buy. So they set you up to learn those things through supporting the people that actually do the job that I now do, Right. So while I was an administrative assistant, essentially, in that capacity, it was the best training ground for me ever. And on top of that, you get the benefit of interacting with all of the sales professionals that work on the floor. And of course, everybody's different, right? And you're not going to align with everybody. So I was really fortunate that I started at the specific company that I work at, because if I started somewhere else, I'm not really sure if I would have made it as far as I did. So the first piece of advice is pick a great company, one that you think is going to support you in the way you need to be supported. And then beyond that, like... You have to trust your gut along the way a lot of the time, right? Like you, you have to pick the right person to partner up with and you got to know, um, like you got to know with something inside of you because you're, you're making again a bit of a leap of faith that it's going to work out. So I picked the right person to be my partner who then taught me how to do what I do now and, and supported me in some of my creative sort of ideas, right? If I had somebody that was kind of small minded and shot down a lot of my out of the box thinking, I, again, I would not have succeeded in the same way, right? Um, so I think that that's really, really important. And then the rest of it is really just all about having an entrepreneurial mindset. Like you have to be willing to take imperfect action, right? You have to be willing to sit inside of a room, be scared, be insecure, be willing to reach out, feeling like you don't know anything and trust that like somehow you're going to figure it out through time and putting in the right energy. And, and that you have to like look inside to have, right? Like, or you have to learn it through reading or, or connecting with good mentors so luckily for me just given my my connection to sports and my connection to poker i, I already had that inside of me um, but i had the right support system really from the company and the partnership level that allowed me to like basically just tap into my skill set and start running love it man love it that's amazing um where, where can people connect with you mostly like where are you most active i know linkedin is one of them but yeah so linkedin is definitely the place that i would love for people to check me out um Perfect. And I would love for people to also check out cbreforward.com and follow all the new stuff that we're doing there, um, notably moving forward, which we're going to be interviewing some of the most prolific uh, Canadian entrepreneurs talking about how they view the future of work. Amazing. The, the powerful David Cairns. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> if you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. And I'll see you next time.